Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Ten years ago, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem that no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. Welcome, everybody, to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. We've got a really awesome episode today. I have assembled the A-Team, the A-Team on Syria, that is. Joining me today is Rania Kalik and Ben Norton, two of the best uh, journalists around who cover the Middle East and Syria. They've been doing it for years, and I don't care what you think or what you think you know, these two people have forgotten more about the Syria situation than most of us will ever know. So... Sit back, listen up. It's going to be a really good one. Just a quick note. Uh, we did two and a half hours of, an, of an, worth of an interview uh, for this particular show. So I'm going to split it up for your benefit into three relatively equal parts. Uh, and I'm going to release those little by little throughout the week. The first two episodes are somewhat wonkish. We go through a lot of history and context. But this is really important stuff. If you want to know Syria, you have to know the history and the context. This is not a game, people. So we're going to give you an overview of the facts on the ground. And so the third episode is going to be uh, an intervention in the intra-left debates around Syria. This is as hot as it gets. I promised you when I started this podcast, I was going to cover controversial topics. I was not going to hide from the, the, the sort of discussions that other people on the left are afraid to have. And so this is as good of an example of that as you're going to find of any of the episodes that I've done so far. So that's why I'm really excited about it. If you're upset by anything that we're saying... Give me some feedback. Let me know what you think. Uh, maybe even if you don't come out of this agreeing with us, maybe you'll have a better, more nuanced understanding of where your opposition is at. And I think that's an important step nonetheless. In any case, listen up. You don't have to like what we're saying, but the two guests that I have on for this week are as knowledgeable as they come. Just a one last quick reminder, if you like what we're doing on the show and you want to support us, please check out the Patreon page. I am on Patreon. It's a fundraising page where you can donate to us. We have $3 a month, $5 a month, and $8 a month. It'll give you access to our message board. You can request uh, show topics. You can recommend guests. You can ask questions for our guests, that type of thing. And really, you can just keep this show free for the masses. I really appreciate your support. That is www.patreon.com backslash dead pundits. Yeah. Donate to the show if you can. If not, I appreciate your support and enjoy the show. I like to think of myself as a very flexible person. I don't have to have one specific way. And if the world changes, uh, I go the same way. I don't change. Well, I do change. And I am flexible. And I'm proud of that flexibility. And I will tell you that attack on children yesterday had a big impact on me. Big impact. That was a horrible, horrible thing. And I've been watching it and seeing it, and it doesn't get any worse than that. And I have that flexibility. And 
It's very, very possible. And I will tell you, it's already happened that my attitude toward Syria and Assad has changed very much. And welcome back to the show. Joining me today is the Syria A-Team. I've got Rania Kalik. She's an independent journalist and the co-host of Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast, as well as Ben Norton. He's a journalist and a writer and a staff reporter for Alternet. How are you guys doing? Glad to Great. Be here, How you doing? <laughs> Sorry, everybody's talking at the same time. I shouldn't. I should have done that differently, huh? Ben, how's it hanging, man? Uh, you know, uh, dealing with the potential of an- yet another U.S.-led war in the Middle East. So, uh, and as far as that goes, I mean, I guess I'm I'm okay. But uh, who knows? Rania, are you building a bomb shelter? I hear Russia has uh, long-range missiles and airplanes. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I, I don't know if I can build a bomb shelter. I'm too distracted by the fact that like everything makes my blood pressure go up right now because everyone's take on Syria <laughs> sucks. Can we curse? Yeah, curse away, man. Yeah, we're, everyone's we're take on Syria fucking sucks and is making me want to claw my eyes out and that's exactly why i brought the a-team on to on on the dead pundit society i don't know i, I mean are, are, rania already revealed to me off air that she's vaguely familiar with the a-team i'm gonna shame you for that later but ben, <laughs> ben Shirley, you know the a-team right mr t the name is mr t first name is mr middle name is that period last name is t so you guys are the A-team. I'm not going to ask you who's Murdoch, who's Face Man. Yeah, that would be or, rude because you know I don't know. Hannibal. I think I'm going to be Hannibal if that's okay with you all. I think I probably look dope. Like, uh, anyway, dressed up in, <laughs> in, in cam- camo and stuff like that, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who any of these people are, but their name sounds really cool. Their names sound really cool, so... Yeah, so let's let's get into the nitty gritty. I want to spell it out for for my listeners here. Um, this is a really convoluted, uh, difficult subject. There are a lot of different debates that are circulating, and the problem is that a lot of these debates aren't explicit about their position. Right? They're sort of presented as the left wing perspective on Syria, and so we want to rewind a little bit. And I'm going to ask Ben spell out what was this thing called the Arab Spring? When did it start, and what does it mean for for where where we're at today? Um, I think it's important to understand that the U.S. response to the so-called Arab Spring or the 2011 uprisings differed very greatly depending, of course, on what the country was. So uh, to make it you know, really simple, it's a little more complex, but to make it simple, in countries that, that are U.S. allies uh, that saw protests, the U.S. essentially opposed the protests. And then in countries that were enemies, the U.S. supported the protests. And, you know, that's not surprising at all. And, and shocker, the U.S. is inconsistent, even though it claims to be acting in human rights, etc. But in Libya and Syria in particular, uh, the U.S. supported protests and pushed for regime change and was successful in Libya. And we see the complete disaster there. But that's another conversation. And then in, in Egypt, in Bahrain, in Saudi Arabia... And in other countries uh, that are close U.S. allies, the U.S. did not support the protests. So in the case of Mubarak, the 29-year dictator in Egypt, really until the last day, you know, beginning in January 2011, up until February, the U.S. was supporting Mubarak. And then when it became clear that he was going to be ousted, then the Obama administration sided with the protesters. In the case of Tunisia, where we saw the first uprising beginning in December of 2010, after Mohamed Bouazizi, who was a Tunisian street vendor, uh, self-immolated, he set himself on fire in protest of government corruption and um, 
there, the U.S. sided with bin Ali, the, prote- uh, the dictator, really until he was on the plane leaving the country, going into exile. And then the U.S. said, okay, we're going to side with democracy in Tunisia. <laughs> Hashtag so, fake friends, right? No, I exactly. Mean, damn. So, and then, of course, in Syria, from the very beginning, the U.S. supported the protests. But I think, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, but I think the most important case study, which is actually almost never acknowledged, is actually Bahrain. So if you look in the Gulf, you know, people talk about Saudi Arabia, they talk about Qatar, they talk about UAE. But actually Bahrain, it's, it's a very small country, but it's actually strategically important. Uh, the U.S. has a, it's at a very important naval fleet there. Uh, it's geopolitically, it, it's a close U.S. ally, and it's essentially a large U.S. military base. Um, and they actually saw the largest protests um, out of any other of the country per capita, um, estimates vary, but people say 15 to 20% of the population in Bahrain were probably in the streets protesting. It were, they were enormous protests, and they were violently crushed after Saudi Arabia and the UAE invaded with 2,000 troops. So, I mean, we hear, hear all this discussion in Syria, like Iran propped up the government, blah, 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 blah. Well, no one talks about the fact that Saudi Arabia and the UAE literally invaded their neighbor, the tiny island of Bahrain, with 2,000 troops in order to crush widely, uh, widely popular democratic protests. And, of course, the U.S. backed this. Right, so, an I mean, American Fifth Fleet is just kind of chilling in the sea, just watching this thing happen, right? Absolutely. And there is also an element of sectarianism in this. Bahrain is one of the only three countries in the Middle East that has a majority Shia population, along with Iran and Iraq. And, of course, many of the protesters happen to be Shia because the majority of the population is Shia. But the monarchy in Bahrain, the brutal repressive monarchy, is Sunni, and they're allied with Saudi Arabia and the U.S., and they portrayed it as a supposed Iranian plot to expand the Shiite crescent and overthrow the government, etc. So looking at this incredibly hypocritical response, I mean, we can look at Syria and see that how from the very beginning, when the U.S. began arming and training rebels with the support of Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, Jordan, we see how intensely duplicitous this this has been from the very beginning. The U.S. claimed it was supporting democracy while crushing democracy in in its own allies, and Saudi Arabia in particular. Saudi Arabia also saw a big protest. Safal Ahmad, the Saudi dissident who's now in exile, uh, she did a great documentary looking at the the uh, the protests inside Saudi Arabia that got no coverage in the Western media because it it really contradicts the narrative that we were fed. Yeah, so Rania, tell us a little bit about you spent some time recently in Syria in in, in the refugee camps and elsewhere. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the story that you heard from uh, firsthand from the people about how the uh, the opposition to Assad uh, began uh, at the beginning of this conflict. Well, from you know, from what I understand, the uprising in Syria in 2011, um, it, we like to think about it in this really picturesque way, where it was this like glory, you know, this sort of glorified revolution. When in reality, in Syria, there was protests in the country for sure, and there were some protests that were full of people, probably like us, people who were young and idealistic and you know, wanted basic reforms and they were inspired by what was happening in the region with the Arab Spring. A lot of people were, right? There was those protests. And then in other parts of the country, and this is what people have a hard time understanding about the Middle East, is Islamism is strong in the Middle East. It has a strong current. And there's also... Maybe back up and tell us, when you say Islamism, let's let's talk precisely about what you mean by that. Because I want to get to the Like religious, like mixing religion and politics. Political Um, Islam. 
Yeah, political Islam, political like the Islam, idea right. of like having like, you know, like we, we have people in the U.S. who want that, who want like the Bible to to be the constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the Middle East, there are groups like most, most, uh, you know, notoriously the Muslim Brotherhood um, that are they want like the Quran to be the constitution. Right. Like you and you have Muslim Brotherhood branches in Egypt and in Lebanon and um, in and in, uh, in Syria and um in in turkey and all these places and um and the, and interestingly enough like these groups that are what i would call like islamist groups they their rise um was definitely fueled by outside powers like the us and the uk um, the muslim brotherhood is kind of the perfect example they've always been an on again off again um collaborator with like the cia and mi6 uh, especially back in you know the beginning of the Cold War and onwards, they were you know political Islamists. They were used by um, U.S. Empire, if you will, uh, against uh, what was seen as the adversary at the time, which was Arab nationalists, communists, basically anybody who seemed like they either might align align with the Soviet Union or seemed like they might be um, inclined to demand that they, they have autonomy over their own or like sovereignty over their own resources. So that's what that goes back to. But the point is, is that it is strong in the Middle East. And that's something that people just didn't anticipate, um, with the Arab spring. I mean, even other Arabs didn't like, they didn't anticipate the fact that when you get rid of regimes in places where Islamism is popular, um, and is well organized, that's, key as well is well organized then that is likely going to be the replacement and that's why that's what we saw kind of that's what happened in egypt right you had these big protests but then the muslim brotherhood ended up winning elections because they were the most organized opposition in the country and that i mean that goes back to the fact that the the region is full of authoritarian um dictatorships right that didn't really allow uh any sort of um, left or liberal or progressive uh, movements to build under them. The only thing that ended up building under them was Islamist movements. And so if you take out the regime, that's what you're left with, because that's the most organized alternative. The point is, in Syria, what happened is you had people like us protesting, and that was more in the you know urban areas. And then you also had areas that, uh, you know, more conservative rural parts of Syria, that the protests from the very beginning were very sectarian, um, and very and, and, and violent. Um, it wasn't just like the violence wasn't just one way. That's not to excuse the violence that was dished out to protesters. The Syrian regime certainly cracked down hard, but that's what every regime in the region did. It's not like it's unique in that respect. But right. what did happen is that the U.S. and its allies like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Jordan and Turkey they all like you know sort of preemptively jumped on this uprising in Syria and um started funneling weapons and are you know started funneling arms and support to uh the like basically to the islamist protesters if you will and that i mean they very quickly became militarized and the conflict turned into this civil war and then you had turkey open its border to isis and you asked me you know about what people in the region told me well you know, especially inside Syria and in the government areas where the majority of Syrians live, something like 75 to 80 percent, possibly more now that the government has taken back, back Aleppo, millions and millions of Syrians in these areas, for the most part, they are terrified of the people that we call rebels because these rebel groups from the beginning, the Obama administration knew that they were dominated um, by groups like Al Qaeda in Iraq and Salafists. And um, the Muslim Brotherhood, 
They knew this and they didn't care because the, you know, the policy was weaken the Assad regime. And so they just armed these groups anyways. And so what you had is the growth of these like fanatical groups that, you know, are so sectarian. They just like want to genocide minorities and they kill anybody who doesn't abide by their crazy rules. And they hate, you know, anybody who literally anybody in Syria who's secular, who's a woman, anybody except Salafi males. Um, are terrified of these groups. They feel like they are surrounded by hordes of zombies. Like one guy even uh, compared them to the white, um, to the who were the zombies in Game the of white, Thrones? The White the, Walkers. The White Walkers. Yeah, because they watched a lot of yeah. weirdly a lot of people watch the Game of Thrones in Syria. In the, even in even people Syrian who don't understand camps. English. <laughs> Holy no, shit. not the refugee camps. And so, I mean, like in like in Syria, like in the government areas, which for the most yeah. part. You know, even though they, they go through rough times, they, they are relatively stable compared to the, the opposition areas of Syria. Did they know that Jon Snow wasn't really dead? Well, they, I don't know how that, far they along they were. Out? Yeah, I'm pretty sure because when I went there, that had already happened. So. I'm curious like, what their take would have been on that. Like, Well, they, this they one guy, this one guy, I talked to him about Game of Thrones for a while and we were like talking about what we think is going to happen next. It was really fun. Um, but the point is, is they <laughs> so, like, like these, but these people, they, they, they feel like they're surrounded by white walkers and they're just like the white walkers are going to devour them and their families. Um, so, and let's, so, so let's backtrack. Let's go to season one or season two before the white walkers emerge. Because I, I know <laughs> that you're really, this show, so I really have absolutely no idea. Oh, but I'll, I'll try to everybody, pretend, like, all, all of, I want yeah, all ben, of the listeners it, to focus ben. your shame, focus your shame on Ben Norton right Seriously, now. Seriously, he doesn't want, who doesn't watch Game of somebody, Thrones? Get, I, somebody tweet Ben Norton your <laughs> HBO Go password. I'm like offended yeah. that Ben doesn't I'm, watch Game of I'm ben, so much what's of your Twitter? What's like, your Twitter name so people I, can tweet you their HBO Go password? They like can I slide your DMs. I still like sit like scouring YouTube for like the latest update and like whatever is happening in like some political issue. But I've never seen Game of Thrones. So I'm, that's I'm wild. Old. That is wild, Ben. You are missing out. It's a great show. And I'll tell you this: I would give you my HBO Go password, but I don't even use my own. Like a good American, I use my cousins. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't even know. Is HBO Go? Is that like Netflix? I don't even know what that is. Yeah, yeah. It's, their, <laughs> oh my it's like their, it's their platform. It's their independent platform. I thought I was like cultural, culturally, like you know, stupid. So Ben, you're making. Well, oh my me feel god, you now. just Ben. That's so funny. You just called Ben culturally stupid. No, but, but no, no. Sorry, I, I should say pop culture. Let's not let's not mix you know high culture and pop culture with the with the the rabble out there. You know, we're we're fucking snobs here at the Dead Punnett Society. <laughs> I like this name. attitude. I feel like I can be arrogant openly now. So let's backtrack to season one or season two before the White Walkers emerge and those little smarmy bastards who read the books, you know, tried to spoil it for us and tell us that they were coming. Um, so back backtrack to 2011, 2012. I actually opened up a Curious Cat a couple of days ago to get some questions. And here's one of the better ones. So the, uh, one of the listeners posted this article from Time Magazine in 2012. And I read it. It's really fascinating. I'll put it in the show notes for people. But uh, and, Sean? Yes, it, it, it's a it really was good article. Really, really good, and it's almost—it's like holy shit! Like we we saw this coming a long time ago. And keep in mind, 2011, 2012 is the time period when the Free Syrian Army is sort of said to have been this sort of secular pro-democracy group that was dominant. You know, that was never true, right? But so, you, but here's a primary source material from that time, from Time Magazine, right? In 2012, is it by interview- uh, Ra- is it by Rania? Um- Yes, yes. Yeah, she's amazing. Ryan Abu Zaid, I think, is yes, her Yes, something name. like that, yeah. yeah. Really and so they, they interview a couple news for fighters mm-hmm. um, who were in that period. And you know, they were sort of, they, they were very mixed in with FSA. And FSA is like, oh, yeah, I know. That's, that's, that's Mohammed. Yeah, I know Mohammed. He's a friend of mine. He's in, yeah, he's in the group, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
we, you know, we grew up together or whatever. So FSA and, and, and Nusra were, were uh, uh, Arar al-Shams and were mixing at that point in time. So Ben, yeah. paint that picture for us in 2011, 2012. What was the real composition of the rebels at that time? Well, it's of course hard to say, but one of the interesting things about this article uh, is it shows how Ahar al-Sham, which is now the largest, most important militia in Syria. And again, this is a, an extreme hardline Salafi group. It's part of the Islamic Front. Um, it's the most important militia. It has at various times allied itself with Jabhat al-Nusra, which despite rebranding, is Syria and al-Qaeda. Um, and uh, this article in Time magazine discusses how Ahra Sham uh, actually began organizing before the protests in March 2011, when they began in Syria. So again, it, mm. it demonstrates that from the very beginning, even before the some, like as Rania said, the protests, some of which were absolutely legitimate, began, we already saw hardline Islamists beginning to organize with the goal explicitly of overthrowing the Syrian government. And again, when you look at a lot of many of these reports from even mainstream U.S. media outlets in early 2011, from late March 2011, um, it's very fascinating to read that, uh, you know, the headlines will say something like, Assad regime kills protesters, etc. And there's no question that like every other government in the region, the Syrian government did violently repress protests, which is also true of Egypt. It's also true of Bahrain. It's also true of Yemen. But of course, those are not presented in the same way that Syria is. Um, mm -hmm. But also what's interesting is you read these articles. I mean, I've been digging back through them in the past you know, year or two. It's interesting historically. At the bottom of the article or halfway through, they will acknowledge that in March, these protesters in places like Dada'a in the south were setting fire to government buildings. Mm -hmm. And again, it doesn't mean that there weren't le some legitimate protesters. There absolutely were. But there were also, uh, you know, Islamist provocateurs who were pushing for regime change who wanted to violently topple the government and were setting fire to courthouses and to right. government buildings. I mean, if protesters... In the U.S., imagine, yeah, set imagine fire, what happened in the U.S. There would be a massacre if they set fire to a courthouse in Brooklyn. It would, oh, they would be in jail for the well, rest of their even, lives if they were. Even massacred. worse, imagine, imagine what would happen if protesters in the U.S. were receiving arms from outside powers and like invading U.S. cities. I mean, which look, look at the Russia stuff now. Oh, maybe one time you win an RT, you're a Kremlin shill. Imagine you're getting weapons from Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's just like, yeah. it's just like no, but and I, and I've you know I I have a friend uh, Rashwan, uh, a Syrian refugee here in the U.S. who uh, his views are not the views that are often allowed to be broadcast on mainstream media outlets. Um, he's uh, he's from Suida in the south of Syria, um, and he lived in Damascus for many years, and he's only been in the U.S. for a few months. He came in right before Trump, fortunately. Um, but he, he was talking about seeing some of the protests, and he was like, yeah, they were very violent. He, 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 he originally supported reforms. He was like, absolutely. I mean, the government is repressive in some ways, and we want some democratic reforms. But most people did not want to violently topple the government. And, of course, the people who are going to be the most committed and the ones who are willing to make the sacrifices in order to overthrow the government are the extreme Islamists. And so, of course, from 2011, I mean, they played an important role. But by 2013 in particular, and especially going into 2014, 
they became the dominant tendency. And today, uh, even even mainstream hawks like Charles Lister, you know, these people who have worked for Gulf-funded think tanks and who have repeatedly called for the U.S. to overthrow the Syrian government, even they now acknowledge that Syrian al-Qaeda completely dominates the Syrian opposition. Mm-hmm. And to, a final note here, Lister did a talk at the Atlantic Council in January on a panel full of all these neoconservative hawks. And the Atlantic Council is a pro-Western think tank funded by Western governments, etc. And he said in that talk, he acknowledged openly that Idlib, the last major rebel-held city in Syria, is, quote, the heartland of Anusra. And Anusra is Syria's al-Qaeda affiliate. Wow. That was a really good. No, I I would actually I just want to add one thing to everything that Ben was just saying is um, is, you know, I when I was in Syria, I talked to and outside of Syria, I met and cultivated relationships with people who were protesters in 2011. And now they want the government to win. Like, Uh, think about that for a second. Um, I mean, that, I'm not saying that's everybody who protested in 2011, but like exactly what Ben just described, there are so many Syrians like this who protested in 2011 or maybe just were sympathetic to the protesters because, of course, everybody wants more freedoms. And, yeah, the government is corrupt and should, you know, there should be reforms. Yeah, um, but sure. then, you know, they quickly got really scared because it's, you know, you look at who the opposition was. And from the very, very beginning, the armed opposition was almost entirely Sunni, if not entirely Sunni. And it was dominated by um, by very sectarian elements, very sectarian elements. And it had Al-Qaeda in it. And Al-Qaeda, of course, ended up dominating eventually. And so I think that's really important for people in the U.S. to try and understand and see it from that perspective. Because it's not just about the evil Assad regime, this like uniquely evil regime that apparently just loves to kill children, which is how it's described. It's about more than that. People who support the integrity of the state of Syria, they're not just dictator lovers. They have like they 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 have skin in the game here and they it's a choice for them. At one one person in particular that I met in Aleppo put it to me this way. He said, "We're trapped between a police state and Al-Qaeda, and there's no way I want to live under Al-Qaeda." Like that was like the way he put it, and I get that. Like, who wouldn't? Yeah, well, apparently in, a lot of people if wouldn't. If you're living in Brooklyn, well, no, because they they're not there, right? They're they're here. They're here, safe in the U.S. or somewhere in Europe. They don't have to worry about roving bands of thugs, you know, uh, uh, patrolling, you know, the towns and and the streets and setting up checkpoints and kidnapping people and ransoming people for money and. And, and raping and pillaging at will, right? There's something to say. Like, I mean, I think we're like socialists. We're on the left and and we criticize, you know, sort of like capitalist law and, and the rule of law is kind of something that like these libs talk about. The, the, you know, the ones who like, the ones who like, uh, who like uh, worship like Ruth Thomas Bader Ginsburg. Friedman. Yeah, or they worship Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, yeah. like those, those types of people are like, oh, the rule of law while they're like pleasing themselves like in, in the shower or whatever. Yeah, like every pro- every protest is a riot to them. Yeah, yeah. every protest yeah. is a riot. Yeah. But there's something to say about the rule of law when it breaks down, right? Well, I mean, it's I think stability. You painted, a very, you painted a very apocalyptic picture of what, what's going on over there. Well, it's about stability. It's about stability because what you just described where you've got a bunch of different gangs running things, that's what happens when you collapse a state. Everybody reverts to their tribal identities and then basically the most powerful and usually ruthless people end up taking over like a bunch of mafia, like a mafia. And that's what you have in parts of Syria that are under. That's one of the reasons this this revolution, as they like to call it, was never successful. 
A revolution to be successful needs to have support from the people. And in Syria, they didn't get that support from the people. They got support from some people, but they didn't get that support from the people. And that was largely because they were dependent on people outside of Syria to make their revolution work. And that made them less... Um, that made them like less reliant on the people in the areas they were controlling, which means they don't have to care about the people in the areas they're controlling or pleasing them. So like that, a big part of this, too, is that they just don't have popular support from Syrians in Syria. And so they've, they've that's lost one of the any reasons sense of legitimacy that they had. So let's ba- I want to back up, though, because the, the, I want to be fair to our opposition here because they're probably not listening. But the, the few of you I who are on the fence, so the few, I hope they are something. the few of them, the few of the people um, who've been arguing that, you know, universities should like ban you from speaking there and stuff like that. So the, the argument is in 2011 and 2012, there was a legitimate popular uprising it was a revolution it was secular and it was pro-democratic and they cite uh you know the numbers of people who were showing up to protests and, and that type of thing uh, as the existence of this sort of like a uh, true side of the revolution so ben tell me a little bit about uh how what, what the character of that was because clearly this time article outlines that like aral asham was uh was sort of there uh in, in the background and nusra was operating in the background but there was a more legitimate let's just let's Let's pretend like there was a more legitimate democratic secular force. What was the composition of that early on? Well, again, and this is the point I made earlier, and this is the point that actually even many supporters of the rebels concede, and that's that, yes, there were nonviolent protesters who were pro-democracy, who were secular, who were committed to progressive change, but they were overwhelmingly nonviolent protesters. They weren't the ones who picked up arms to overthrow the government. And again, this is it gets down to largely a question of who's going to be ideologically motivated to risk their life to overthrow this government. And it's largely hardline sectarian Islamists. So, yes, I mean, they're also, if you look at the history of the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, there were defections from the Syrian army into the FSA, although it's it's likely uh, that those were exaggerated. But even when you look, if you read even mainstream media reports, uh, and you don't even need to read lefty media outlets, you know, well, not like those would be any better. Oh, yeah. But but like, so for instance, and I, we're going to get there very soon. Yeah, just like looking historically back at the beginning of the conflict, if you dig through and read some of these reports, they acknowledge things like, for instance, Aleppo, which is was the largest and most important area inside province inside of Syria. Um, unfortunately, it's it's largely been destroyed from the fighting. I mean, it's it's a real it's a horrific tragedy. It really, Aleppo is. had a thriving industrial center, uh, a lot of production, and where and, people and have a, lived for thousands working of years. Class, I mean, one of the oldest, one active. of the oldest cities, cities in the in, world. I mean, some people say it and Damascus are probably the most long inhabited cities in in history. And uh, but if you go back and read some of the reports in 2012 when. Uh, rebels were fighting to take over Aleppo. Even mainstream media reports in places like Reuters, uh, The Guardian did a great piece in 2012 in which they acknowledge, even though they're clearly pro-rebel, that that the majority of the people in Aleppo were not pro-rebel. And actually, there was an article for, in 2012 in which a Syrian rebel told the Guardian, and, I, and actually I just got this up because uh, it's, it's important to read. The Syrian rebel told the Guardian in 2012, quote, around 70% of Aleppo's city is with the regime. It has always been that way. So when you look and then you read like the reports about how, you know, these FSA brigades None of which had a, a an organized like senior political leadership. I mean, these are a bunch of warlords, and they later acted like warlords. They would take over small areas. 
you read about Aleppo, people were fleeing not just the airstrikes. And again, people are certainly fleeing airstrikes, but they're also fleeing these warlords who take over their neighborhoods and just subject them to arbitrary rule. Um, some of these groups have used torture, especially the Islamist uh, militias. And I mean, when we're talking about the FSA too, I think it's really important just to understand in perspective that this was never the kind of organized political organization that it was discussed uh, that was discussed in the Western media and actually a bunch of plucky college kids who had read their marks and they wanted freedom and democracy right <laughs> well, I mean, and, and even then like, we would never uh, arm those kids anyways and even then as someone you know I'm, I'm absolutely I'm a revolutionary socialist I'm committed to revolutionary political change but when you look at the history of revolutionary socialist political activity it's not the people who are the, the plucky college students who read Marx? It's the it's the working class. They're the makers of history. It's people right. from oppressed backgrounds rising up. So, I mean, I think another really important point I'll add here um, before just bloviating too much, but I think it's really important to stress this because even now uh, we have mainstream liberal and even right-leaning academics and scholars and pundits who are acknowledging this reality. So I think Mark Lynch is an interesting example. Uh, Mark Lynch is a professor at Georgetown. Uh, he's yeah, like a, a kind of mainstream figure, or sorry, George Washington University, rather. Um, he's a professor of political science and international affairs, um, and he also directs the Middle East Studies program there. And I got up this quote because it's very insightful. Um, he wrote in 2016... Quote, the FSA has always been something of a myth with a media presence far outstripping its actual organizational capacity. And then he also said that the FSA really was essentially, quote, a diverse array of local defense forces, ideological trends and self-interested warlords. It exercised little real command and control and had little ability to formulate or implement a coherent military strategy, end quote. So, of course, when you don't have any kind of organized political leadership that is really unified under any particular ideological system, you have Islamists, you have Salafis, you have Islamists who support democracy, you have secular people who support democracy, you have opportunists who just want their own cut. I mean, it's you have a bunch of roving gangs, and there was never a united political opposition. And of course, it was the Islamists and the hardline Salafis like Al-Qaeda that took over. Right. Let's keep in mind this professor from George Washington University. For those who don't know the composition of these universities in D.C., uh, these guys, uh, you know, they 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 chunk out uh, State Department types and spooks, you know, CIA uh, deep state types. So, I mean, this is not a radical guy who he's, he's just he's, he seems to be a realist uh, who's yeah, sort of reading Mark the Lynch, writing on the wall. Mark Lynch is also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and th- yeah. that is not a left wing institution. Security policy stuff. I mean, this is very reminiscent of the the documentary Nine Days from my window in Aleppo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen Nine Days, it's short. Uh, you can watch it, and it's it's terrifying. There's a there's a photographer in Aleppo, and he 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 sort of is there to document the uprising. And you see over the course of day one, day two, day three, you see the sort of composition of the people who are occupying the streets and exchanging fire with one another change. And uh, and and by the end of the nine days. Uh, this guy dips out because he's like, fuck this, I'm out. There are a bunch of bearded warlords outside my house, like building barricades, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah, um, it's 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 really stunning because, you know, uh, Ben keeps mentioning going back and reading earlier reports out of the mainstream press. Even though they were pro-rebel, you do get, for the most part, pro-rebel, you do get a clearer picture than you get today. And I think that one thing about Syria that's been really, really 
difficult for people to understand it because of this is that what we've seen around Syria is the most successful um, propaganda apparatus in probably in history. I mean, I've never seen such a poorly covered conflict. And I say that as somebody who spent years covering and and, uh, and reporting about Israel-Palestine. I thought that was bad. The Syria issue became extremely distorted specifically after 2013 because reports from, I mean, what, what Ben is talking about, I do this too. I've been going back and reading all of these reports about Syria from all these mainstream outlets from, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013. And yeah, and, and after 2013, what happened is Western journalists started being kidnapped routinely and ransomed. And so journalists stopped going to Syria as much, stopped going to the rebel areas as much. And because of that, they became reliant on rebel propaganda. Rebel propaganda has been funded to the tune of, you know, tens of millions, actually probably hundreds of millions of dollars by places like the U.S. State Department through the USAID and by um, the U.K. Foreign Office. I have a colleague of mine in the region when I wrote about this who was offered $17,000 a month to go work for a UK-funded rebel propaganda out- outlet out of Gaziantep, Turkey, where he would basically write, um, not under his own name, but as like a rebel. And so <laughs> this is what people, so a lot of the journalists reporting on Syria today, they're reporting on Syria from Beirut or from Gaziantep in Turkey. They're oh, not reporting on Syria from Syria. For, I got to stop you there because there's one brave soul. <laughs> there's one brave soul, Ben. <laughs> I think you, you'll, 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 you'll understand <laughs> Uh, his name is Bilal Abdul Karim. I follow this. I follow this brother on Twitter, and he's just the bravest man you've ever seen because he is in rebel-held territory, going face to face with Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda held Let's territory, <laughs> and I mean, this guy has the best luck of anybody I've ever seen. Like he's never been kidnapped. No, he's which never is weird, been right? ransomed. And like he even like he chills sometimes. He gets exclusive interviews. With, I with think because he's like so smooth or something. He's so fly. So, like even the Al Qaeda, like you know, uh, jihadis like respect him for so that. Even like you're a good journalist, dude. So like even <laughs> so, jokes. So who aside, is Badal Abdul Karim? Tell, well, like, tell us who this guy is. Well, really quickly, like even jokes aside, I mean, Ronnie and I can't speak too openly, but we've been working on something and i can't say too much but let's just say he has very extensive ties to al-qaeda that are very compromising um and uh this is a an american Some might say he's even a member i don't i'm just <laughs> i'm just throwing that out there i'm just but, uh, throwing that out there. this is an american who had a, a whitewashed article written about him in the new york times about how he provides a unique perspective and he, he i believe the title of that article territory. was an american in syria with a perspective. Are you sure that <laughs> Al-Qaeda doesn't have, like, compromat on him? Like, maybe he was peeing. Maybe he was, like, peeing on a sex worker, like, in a hotel outside of Aleppo or something. Well, well speaking it. of the sexual hangups of Salafis, that's actually a very interesting point of discussion. But on, uh, on that note... <laughs> oh, Salafis um, are kinky. I didn't know that. Uh, you gotta tell You gotta tell Oh, man, stories. you got oh, no, like, well, You have no idea. That's another... You need, like, a whole other episode for that. I know. Oh, it's coming. We're gonna do this. But uh, but I'll say, Blyal Abdul-Kareem had this thing about the, in the New York Times written about him and the photo that the New York Times used, it's glorious, was him standing next to a suicide bomber. And it's from a video <laughs> in which he justifies a suicide bomber. And then I pointed that out on Twitter and I tagged.
tagged Ben Hubbard, the author, and I tagged the New York Times, and then they changed it like an hour later. Uh, yeah, <laughs> without 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 saying anything like about it. Yeah. Uh, but, but no, I you know I just want to throw this in there, Bilal. I gotta say before Ben finishes to explaining who he is exactly. Well, I'm done. Go for it. Uh, well, no, 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 because I think you should go a little bit because you wrote a really good article, kind of just about how sectarian this dude is and, and stuff. But he um. I think it's really funny. If you haven't watched his videos, you should. I think they're the most entertaining thing ever. Yeah, so let's um, backtrack. Tell us who he is. Like, tell us who he is and, and what he's done. I don't want to assume that all my listeners are sort of in on this joke. Uh, t- who is Bilal Abdul Karim and, like, what has he done? What is he responsible for? And how is he sort of perceived, I guess? Do you, well, want, to, do you want me to take that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to say before yeah, yeah, you do ahead, that, it's, Sorry, he's a really, he's, well, I just, all I wanted to say is he's like a cross between um, Bill Cosby and Mr. Rogers. In his delivery, <laughs> he's always like, he's just like, hey, kids, today I'm in Aleppo next to a suicide bomber. Can you say suicide bomber? Like, it's like, he's just, so, it's so entertaining. It's, there's something likable because of that. Anyways. How many well, so this is, pudding pops this is yeah. before you blow yourself up? All right, so this is an American that was, that was a That was a terrible Bill Cosby impression. That was really bad. Like, myself. you didn't even sound God, like him. awful. All right, so this is an American expat who's from New York, um, and he was a... Uh, an erstwhile comedian who kind of wasn't very successful, and then he he converted to Islam, and and then he kind of just became pretty extreme, and then he moved. He became to the like Gulf. a Wahhabi, like he's yeah. like. So he moved to the Gulf, and actually he be, he was started doing video production. And speaking of like doing children's stuff, I dug up some of his. I did a really detailed four thousand word article looking at looking at his life and all his things. He also applauded um, the the bomb or the shooter rather at. Uh, uh, Nidal, who attacked um, at Fort Hood, like um, and killed several Americans, and but yeah, anyway, yeah. so he he's an expat who went to the Gulf, and he started like making like these videos, and he had this program, and like <laughs> there's some like YouTube videos from like a decade ago where he's like teaching little kids how to play soccer and like cutter or whatever, and then eventually, of course, the war in Libya happens, and he's a staunch supporter of the Salafi rebels there, and that's. Another conversation that's actually very similar to what happened in Syria, although we see what happened in Libya when the U.S. did lead regime change and it led to complete disaster in a failed state, the rise of ISIS, uh, the takeover by groups like Ansar uh, Sharia and all these extremist hardline groups. Um, so then, of course, he went to Syria after the so-called you know, liberation of, of Li- Libya, the destruction of the country. Um, and he's been in Syria in rebel-held territory, and he's fancy he fancies himself now a journalist, and he essentially makes Al Qaeda propaganda. He interviews the leaders of Al Qaeda and other extremist groups, um, which explicitly in his interviews say things like Shia are not real Muslims; they're polytheistic fire worshippers; they're based on Zoroastrianism. Uh, he says things like the Syrian army uh, will imprison you if you pray. Um, just like the most outlandish, absurd things. And uh, he, ho- he hosts guests who, uh, in their sermons, call for God to kill Alawites and, and kill Shia. And for those who don't know, wow. um, you know, the majority of Muslims in the world are Sunni. And uh, in the Middle East, there are a few different branches of Shia. And one of the branches that's, I mean, it's kind of loosely, I mean, it, it, was, it was like a heterodox like uh, kind of branch off of Shia Islam, um, and this is these are the Alawites, and um, it's a s- small percentage of the Syrian population, but the Assad family is Alawite, 
Um, so a lot of sectarianism is couched in criticism of the Syrian government and the Assad family, but it's often genocidal. So they'll say things like, yeah, this is an Assad or this is an Alawite regime and we must kill all Alawites, etc. Right. So let's get into that. This is perfect timing because one of my one of my upcoming questions was going to be to deal with this this matter of Sunni uh, Sunni supremacism, uh, the Sunni supremacist ideology that's pushed by uh, Salafism and and it comes from uh, Saudi Arabia in particular. Um, so what what is the role of Sunni supremacism? And I mean, because we got to talk about Al Jazeera here, right? I mean, Al Jazeera's reporting, in well, some senses, if you, if you know what to look for, is really atrocious and it's quasi-genocidal. Let, let me put uh, so it this way. So maybe let's break that apart. Well, let me put it this way because, I mean, people hear Sunni supremacism and they're just like, what? That sounds so foreign. So in the Middle East, um, the dominant majority group is Sunnis, if we're talking about sect, because sect has become so important in the region. Right. So if we're talking about religious sect. Sunnis are the majority. Um, that's kind of how it's always been. Uh, but... If you like think about that in any context, the majority group tends to kick around minorities. Um, you know, if you want to think about the U.S., we have a white. There's a white majority that you white know, supremacy, like, sure. right? And there's white supremacy. That doesn't mean everybody who's white is a white supremacist. Not everybody who's Sunni in the Middle East is a Sunni supremacist. Yeah. But there is an ideolo- any ideology in the Middle East, whether it's Wahhabism or Salafism, which are pretty much you know a part of each other in a way. Like Wahhabism is sort of a version. Of Salafism or the other way around. You could actually say both those things in a way. Um, but the point is, is that it's the, you know, Wahhabism is an ideology that basically um, sees other, like, there's a, there's a certain kind of Muslim you're supposed to be. And that's like a Sunni, like a religiously conservative Sunni Muslim who like abides by, you know, various very orthodox followings. And anybody who doesn't is not a real Muslim and is essentially like, you know, you can oppress them, you can kill them, you can, um, you know, forcibly convert them, you can do all kinds of things to them. And if they start come from certain groups, particularly if they're Shia, or if they're Druze, or like the Yazidi, or, um, or things like this, then they are, they are actually not only killable, but you can enslave them as well. Um, and Shia are sort of like on the shit list when it comes to Wahhabism. Like if you're Shia, you're worse than everything. You're basically, wor- you're worse than Jews and Christians. You know, and if anything, I think there's like a conspiracy theory that's traveled around now where um, the Shia are all like considered. It's like the Shia was the, the Shia Islam was really started by a Jew. That's like that's the thing now It's like it was really started by a, by a Jew and all the Shia are agents of Iran. So we have and anti-Semitism so, and uh, Sunni. Uh, oh my God! All Wahhabism is anti. Wahhabism is it's anti everything. It's anti like I, I cannot stress that enough. It's like anti women. It's anti. It's like. Think about like um, it's it's a really it's fascistic in so many ways because it wants to return the whole idea of Salafism is like to return to the glory days of Islam to like the you know the first generations after Muhammad's time um, and I don't even think that those generations might we would even recognize to some extent the way that, that that it looks when it's practiced by Saudi Arabia or like ISIS but the point is it's all about going back to some glory day you know um, to make America great again if you will to make Islam great again. Um, and so that actually like is a huge uh, component to fascistic ideologies is wanting to go back to some glory day that didn't really exist. Um, but then there's also a pure, a puritanical element to it of wanting to purify Islam, um, of all, of, of like minorities, of wanting to purify it of all these bad things, you know, and it's kind of, that's like, honestly, that shares a lot with like, I would say like, it's, you know, think of Nazism and wanting to purify the race. 
um, that's kind of that's what ISIS. That's how ISIS acts towards Islam. That's how Al Qaeda acts towards Islam, and that's kind of what Wahhabism preaches. And so this ideology is not naturally popular. It just happens to be very violent in the region. And it's funded by petrodollars, specifically from Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia has spent like what is it like a one hundred like, billion? The estimate yeah. since the seventies, one hundred billion, spreading Wahhabism uh, throughout. The yeah, world. spreading Wahhabism not just around the region. I mean, like around into Sunni around the Muslim Indonesia. populations around the world. So you've got that's why when you see the news um, about like the Shia around the world, it's always like, oh, a Shia mosque was blown up in Bangladesh, or a Shia mosque was blown up in Pakistan. Or like even in some parts of Europe or in Australia, there was two boys who were arrested last year for planning an attack on a Shia mosque there. I mean, this shit has traveled so far and wide. And Saudi Arabia, in many ways, seeks to remake Sunni Islam in its own image. And that's incredibly dangerous Um, because this Wahhabism and Salafism, these are really the ideological inspiration for groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS. Um, you know, and I, you know, like when we look at time, like things like 9-11, for example, I've really, I've come to understand 9-11 in a totally different light because what was driving it, like everybody always wants to make excuses, unfortunately, um, for, you know, Salafi jihadist groups in saying, oh, well, they were reacting to foreign policy grievances. Well, here's the thing is these groups, I mean, there's definitely foreign policy grievances against the West, but they're now acting against those foreign policy grievances by beheading minorities in the region. So I think that that's not sufficient enough to just to explain uh, what is driving their behavior. It is an ideological problem as well. And these groups are tools at the same time. They're tools of Saudi Arabia, of Qatar, of all of these Gulf states that want to like that really like want to, um, you know, turn the region into a place that's dominated by Sunni governments in their image. And it's also used as a tool by the Americans because in both cases, they want to they basically empower these Sunni extremist groups now in, a, in an effort to counter Iran and Hezbollah in the region. And so that you do that by exacerbating Shia, anti-Shia sentiments and by funding and arming these Salafi jihadist groups, despite the fact that in the long term, the consequences will be bad for not just the region, but for Europe, which is already facing attacks from this ideology spreading. And it's going to eventually hit the U.S. again. I would, you know, I would compare it in many ways to what we saw in the 1980s in Afghanistan, which is basically where Al-Qaeda comes from, um, the U.S. empowering, you know, the Mujahideen there. And, you know, eventually a few of those people went and were like, oh, OK, we're going to start Al-Qaeda and now the West is our enemy. Um, so it's an ideological problem and it's destroying the region. And I'm, you know, as a, someone who's an Arab minority from the region, who's like, you know, my family in the region is Druze and they're in both Syria and Lebanon and they are under threat from groups like this because they are killable and enslavable in Idlib. In Idlib, the Druze population there, many of them have been driven out. The few thousand who've, who, who are still there, they've been forcibly converted to like Wahhabism by um, by Nusra, by Al Qaeda in this in this area. And nobody cares. The Christians in Idlib were either driven out or they were killed or in some cases they were ransomed. And I have friends whose families were Christian in Idlib and they were not able to pay back those ransoms. So they still don't know what happened to their families. Um, They're probably dead. But I mean, this is what's happening in the region. This is the side of the conflict that you don't hear about. You hear about it in the in the case of like when ISIS is doing it um, in either Iraq or Syria. But it's like the rebels that we empowered, which are now basically Al Qaeda, 
um, because they all joined a coalition with them. Those rebel groups, we still talk about them like they're not sectarian assholes who kill minorities and forcibly convert them. Right. So, Ben, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the so this is an ideology, right? But there's there are material forces that are backing Absolutely. this ideology. Yes. And there's this perverse circularity that Rania is pointing to, where on the one hand, uh, Saudi Arabia is the leading exporter of this this radical, violent uh, Salafist ideology. But the U.S. is also stoking that ideology by proxy in order to sort of um, push the Saudi uh, power block in the Middle East against Syria and Iran. So maybe talk a little bit about that for us, Ben. Well, absolutely. Um, and just run a quick, uh, I guess, nomenclature point. I mean, there are people who distinguish between Wahhabism and Salafism, and and uh, Wahhabism it was created. It's named after uh, uh, Ibn Abd al Wahhab, who I mean f- created the movement as a kind of puritanical, um, anti-Sufi uh, Muslim ideology. But mm. in general, people use Wahhabism, Wahhabism, and uh, Salafism largely as synonyms. They're not exactly the same, but um, just for people who are interested in that. But yeah, it's really important to understand that this, as Rania, you know, uh, touched on, this is an intentional result of an explicit Cold War policy. And we now we have thorough documentation of all of this. But really going back to the 1950s, um, Eisenhower, I mean, this is a document you can find from notes on the U.S. Department Office of the Historian. Um, and Eisenhower, in a meeting at the White House, explicitly said that we should stress, quote, the holy war aspect. This was in the 1950s. And it, it shows how the U.S. had intentional strategy of cultivating right-wing Islamist groups as a way of inoculating uh, people in the global south who are resisting colonialism and imperialism to left-wing ideologies. So it's a way of mm-hmm. cultivating anti-communist in particular, but also anti-Bathist, anti-secular nationalist forces. And Saudi Arabia was the beacon of this. So Saudi Arabia as a state, I mean, it's it's probably the most repressive country in the world. And this is also the underlying irony of the conflict in Syria. Everyone's like, oh, we need, you know, we need to support the struggle for democracy, blah, blah, blah. But it's like the primary sponsors of the rebels, many of whom are extremists in Syria, is is, uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and also Qatar. And Saudi Arabia is an absolute theocracy monarchy, uh, and it's it, it you know there are no democratic rights whatsoever. There is no civil society. Women are subjugated by law. They're not able to travel without the consent of their male guardians. And under the guardianship system, right. even yeah. if they if they don't have a husband or a father, they're they're sons. If they have a son, and, and under some circumstances. Mothers can be subjugated by their own sons under the law. Like, we're talking about one of the most repressive regimes in the entire world. And, of course, the U.S. has propagated this for years intentionally. I mean, the U.S. has propped up this regime uh, that would have been overthrown like uh, the other monarchies in the region. So, uh, you know, in the 1950s, uh, Nasser led the Free Officers Movement and and toppled the British-backed Egyptian monarchy. Um, You know, there were revolutions to overthrow the Libyan monarchy in Iraq. You get on the list. But the reason that these hyper-reactionary monarchies still exist is because they were in... it's, It's... pretty simple. I mean, there are other reasons, but the primary reason is they were in oil-rich countries that were close, uh, tie, that closely tied to the West and were very useful to Western interests, mainly for their oil reserves, and were propped up. So 
Aramco became an extension of U.S. and British power in Saudi Arabia. They supported the monarchy and prevented it from being toppled, uh, helped it crush any kind of internal dissent they would, uh, you know, seek doing so. Um, and we see where we are today. I mean, after violently crushing all left-wing movements throughout the region, the only things that are left these secular repressive governments are now being toppled as well. I mean, uh, the irony is Baathism actually was anti-communist. And if you look, there was a split in the 1960s between the Iraqi and the Syrian Baathist parties. And the U.S. supported the Iraqi Baathists because they were anti-communist. They overthrew Qasem, the Iraqi leader who was pro-communist. And they overthrew uh, the pro-communist leader, supported Saddam Hussein and and the Iraqi Baathist party, uh, and helped them personally gave them a list of communists to to kill and to destroy. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1980s, after the Iran revolution, the U.S. supports Saddam Hussein. So when you look at, I mean, we're living through the echoes of the Cold War, and we're living through the nightmare that has been created by by siding with these hyper-reactionary forces. As Rania mentioned, I mean, Saudi Arabia has spent $100 billion spreading uh, Wahhabism throughout the world, not just the Middle East, also in Indonesia uh, and, and, and Pakistan. And the way it does it is very clever. It doesn't just, uh, you know, support sheikhs and support, uh, you know, imams. It supports schools and charities. Um, in Indonesia, for instance, uh, there was an article in The Atlantic recently discussing how Saudi Arabia created a free university. It's a public university that anyone can go to. They don't have to pay tuition. So, of course, a lot of poor people end up going there. Uh, It's gender segregated. Women do not have professors. They are on the second floor and they watch professors through a TV screen because they're not allowed to have male professors. Um, Men are all on the bottom floor. Uh, Music is banned. Laughter is banned in this Saudi-funded school. And the Indonesian government told this journalist writing for The Atlantic that they have a really big problem where all these people coming from this school are – they're pro-ISIS. so we see how shocking. <laughs> yeah, we see how Saudi Arabia, this the close US ally with whom Trump is continuing to build a closer and closer relationship, which is currently as we speak bombing and killing thousands of Yemenis and starving them and pushing them, you know, into the brink of famine so that so they submit and and refuse to uh or, so they submit and kowtow to a Saudi-backed leader. I mean, Really, it's not just about oil, of course. There are other reasons. But looking at the fact that Saudi Arabia has the second largest oil reserves in the world, looking at, at back at statements in the 50s and the 60s, and, and how they openly admitted that Saudi Arabia was a close U.S. ally precisely because it can, not only has large oil reserves, but because it has a leadership role in OPEC and can control the price of oil in the global market. So, for instance, in the past few years, the prices of oil have dropped substantially, but that is largely because Saudi Arabia has been overproducing intentionally. And by overproducing, Saudi Arabia isn't really concerned about losing that much money because it has such an insane amount of oil reserves. But what that does is because it, you know, it has less expenditures as a state. It provides fewer social services. It is much more concentrated uh, monarchy. Uh, the U.S. can pressure Saudi Arabia to hurt Western enemies. So Russia has been hurt by the oil, uh, oil overproduction and the drop of the price of oil. Iran has been hurt. Uh, Venezuela 
the, one of the primary reasons that Venezuela's economy has been going through such an intense crisis is because Venezuela, which implemented so many incredible positive progressive reforms and helped fight poverty and did all these amazing things, it's still its model is still petrostate based. And when the price of oil dropped by more than 200% because Saudi Arabia was intentionally overproducing, the economy just just you know fell through the floor and i mean looking at the constellation of this and looking at how saudi arabia is the one of the largest purchaser if not the largest purchaser of foreign arms in the entire world and under eight years of obama saudi arabia bought 115 dollars 115 billion dollars with a b 115 billion of arms sales from the saudi arabia from the u.s i mean like saudi arabia really is it feeds you know, the military industrial complex. It makes sure that oil it stays at particular Saudi prices. Saudi Arabia, in a lot of interests. ways, Saudi Arabia is like a base for for Western imperialism in the region. Absolutely. And it's important to, and I'll add one more point here and not keep going on too much, but it's important to, I mean, this is also uh, similar for Israel for me, but some people disagree with that. But especially Saudi Arabia, you know, you have these right wing uh, nationalists who are critical of Saudi Arabia, but for the wrong reasons. And they'll say things like, oh, why we're letting Saudi Arabia control us, blah, blah, blah. It's the exact opposite. It's not, you know, that there's some globalist conspiracy and then Saudi Arabia, the Saudi lobby is is buying all our politicians in, in Washington. I mean, the Saudi lobby is in some ways, you know, they, they're not non-influential, but it's the U.S., that has propped up Saudi Arabia for decades. It's not Saudi Arabia that controls the U.S. And the U.S. has allowed this to continue because it's simply too profitable and because it would simply, it would be too much, it would provide too much chaos and turmoil if the U.S. tried to to significantly change anything in Saudi Arabia. The oil is by far the most important commodity on the planet. And if even, even if the price of oil changes a little bit that can really have enormous repercussions. It's the butterfly effect. So the right. U.S. has simply said, okay, we're going to use this regime for our imperial interests and prop it up for these decades. And again, like I, like Ben was alluding to earlier, I mean, Saudi Arabia is a country that could not exist. It could not have become come into founding had it not been for the um, help it received from the U.K., the Wahhabis received from the U.K. and the royal family. Um because that is, I mean, Saudi Arabia was able, a lot, I mean, the people that you see in ISIS right now, the way that ISIS behaves, even the way they dress, the way they act, the, the kinds of atrocities they carry out are identical to the like Wahhabi Ikhwan soldiers, if you will, who conquered modern day Saudi Arabia. They did the same shit. They destroyed, they, you know, Saudi Arabia has destroyed more shrines, mm-hmm. more Muslim shrines than ISIS has. The difference is it replaces, um, it replaces them with Hilton hotels and right. gender-segregated <laughs> shopping malls. Here, I'll, right. add one, I'll add one more point here. Uh, another thing that we now know is in Raqqa, which is ISIS's capital in eastern Syria, uh, we, there are journalists who have written about how when they needed textbooks for their schools in ISIS-held territory, they went on the internet and printed out Saudi state textbooks and gave them to their children because, again, ideologically, they're totally on board. And, and I'll say there are two places in the world where women are banned from driving, Saudi Arabia and ISIS-held territory. Uh, Interestingly enough, the women who are married to Nusra people, I'm told, have the privilege of driving.
And that is the conclusion of part one of our three-part interview that I have with Ranya Kalik and Ben Norton. Stay tuned later on in the week. I'm going to be dropping two more parts to this interview. Uh, The next part is going to continue with this uh, sort of contextual, geopolitical, strategic uh, background. This stuff is really essential, people. Uh, this is the this is what separates uh, the real people from the fakes uh, in terms of who knows what about Syria. And so, stay tuned. Let's get through this, the the next episode. And I promise you, episode three, we're going to bring the fire in terms of staking out some positions on the left when it comes to having uh, uh, the, the the right kind of anti war stance when it comes to Syria. So, I will see you all very soon later in the week. One last appeal. Doing a podcast can be hella expensive. My overhead is growing by the week. So if you can, if you liked what you hear, if you want to support what we're doing here at the Dead Pundit Society, go to our Patreon page and donate if you can. Uh, We'd really appreciate it. That's www.patreon.com backslash deadpundits. Or you can find us on Google. Until next time, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...